Thanks, man. Man, how many times do you have to come when you stop being a guest? Yeah, it kind of feels that way. Well, good morning, Trinity. It is great to be with you again. And uh, I don't know about you, but I was just so blessed by that that worship this morning. I'm going to take these notes and put them over here. Sorry, whoever's music stand this is. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but uh, just coming in here this morning, uh, just sometimes you have a rough week or you have rough things going on in your life and you start feeling overcome and overwhelmed. And it was just such a great reminder to sing those words to the Lord, to be reminded that, you know, do we believe? Do we remember that He has overcome? And what He has done for us, that He has overcome these things on our behalf. So it was just a wonderful time of worship, and I thank you for that. It was awesome. So why don't we go ahead and pray before we get into God's Word this morning. Father God, we thank You so much for the privilege it is to be known by You and to engage Your Word, Your living Word. Father, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would move powerfully this morning. That, Lord, that I would just get out of your way and that you would just move so powerfully in the hearts of your people. Jesus, thank you for overcoming sin and death and evil on our behalf. That whatever is going on, whatever we may be feeling, even if it's to the point of despair, that we may be reminded That we have hope in you. That in the end, Lord, you've already won the battle. And we are looking forward to your return. So, Lord, we thank you for the gift of new life, of restoration. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week, I was having a pretty mundane morning. I was sitting there having my morning coffee And I was watching the news, and there happened to be a segment on what else but the election. And as the pundits were in the middle of giving their hot takes and feedback on the current state of the race, here comes uh, my six-year-old walking down the stairs. He's still kind of half asleep. He's got his teddy bear under his arm, and he plops himself on the couch next to his dad for some morning snuggles. Good stuff. And as you can imagine, as these political talking heads, they're going back and forth and around and around. They don't have too many nice things to say to one another or about either candidate. And as this is going on, I could see the wheels turning in my son's head that he's kind of taking it all in. And I'm thinking to myself, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And sure enough, When the segment was over, he asked me a couple of questions that left me a bit tongue-tied. He looked up at me and he said, Daddy, are Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, are those the two people that are running for president? I said, yeah, they are. He goes, well, well, Dad, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Because in his world... Things are black and white. There are good guys 
and there are bad guys, and we need to figure out who the good guy is so we get on their team and we fight the bad guys. And he just lo- he, and he, he just loves his superheroes, whether it be the Avengers or Superman or Batman. And so I'm sitting there and being like, wow, what a question. How do I possibly respond to this? I mean, should I get down on his level and kind of explain, you know, well, imagine if you could, if there were two candidates and you could only vote for one. And the two candidates were the Joker or Catwoman. Who would you vote for? But I didn't say that. And so I'm just I'm just sitting there and I'm tongue tied. And then he comes back with another one and he goes, "Well, Daddy, who are you voting for?" And now I'm really tongue tied. And the best thing I could come up with was, you know what? why don't we have some chocolate chip waffles for breakfast? And that's what we did. As many of you may know, this year's election has already been historic. And yes, it is the first time a woman has been nominated for president in one of the major political parties. But sadly, that's not what I'm referring to. What I'm referring to is the infamous statistic that both candidates, yes, both candidates are the most disliked candidates in the history of the presidential election. Yes, you heard that right. Not one, but both candidates have broken the record for the lowest favorability ratings in the history of the presidential election. Same election. Yes, indeed, this is the best that we could come up with. But do you ever stop and ask yourself the question, how did we get here? Like, even if we went back just like 10 years ago, Did you ever think we would be arguing about things that seem so elementary, like, who's allowed in what bathroom? I mean, our hearts break when we see the marginalized, like the unborn, immigrants, the poor, seemingly more neglected than ever. Racial tensions are high. Communities cry out in anguish. And our heroes, like our police officers, are targeted by those who they put their very lives on the line to protect and serve. It just seems like the world is on fire, doesn't it? And many of us scratch our heads and ask that very question. How did we get here? How have we fallen so far? And I'm sure we could take a detailed look back in history and have a long discussion involving sociology or politics or theology, exploring the the answer to that question. But if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it's pretty simple. This is what happens when we drift away from God. And I'm not talking about silly things like saying Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas and many other peripheral issues that people like to argue about and become distracted with. I'm talking about when our hearts drift away from God and we choose another to be our first love. See, the problems of this world cannot be solved by the things of this world. There is this temptation to respond to the issues that we are encountering with with anger and condemnation. Or maybe we find ourselves wanting to compromise because we, 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 we're just sick of not fitting in. 
we just want to belong. Or maybe some of us, we're just too tired to care anymore. So we throw our hands up and we withdraw and we just say, you know what, I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to take care of me and my family. But the scriptures say, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And it's not time for us to give up. It's time for us to engage. Because in the midst of this, we have good news and his name is Jesus Christ. And we need to be reminded that in the midst of everything that's going on, God is not surprised. He's not up in heaven with his hands on his head, pulling his hair out, going, I can't believe this is happening. We need to be reminded that our God is in control. The good news is that he has conquered sin and death through his son Jesus, and our hope is firmly secure in him. That those that are in Christ know that we will overcome because he has already overcome evil and death on our behalf. And now we have the peace and freedom to live for Jesus, to engage the brokenness around us for the sake of his glory in building up his kingdom. And we need to be reminded that no politician or government has the power to save except for Jesus Christ. So you guys can go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to be in the Old Testament this morning. And uh, we're going to eventually get there, but not for a little bit. But go ahead and open up your Bibles now. And we're going to find Israel in a very similar place that we find ourselves in today. That despite God delivering His people time and time again and blessing Israel with so much, they make the decision. To replace the Lord as their first love with another. And so as you're making your way to 1 Samuel 8, it's significant for us to understand the culmination of events that has brought Israel to this point. So I'm going to give you a little context this morning before we start studying 1 Samuel 8. I'm going to start in the book of Exodus because that's where the Lord starts in 1 Samuel 8. And in the book of Exodus, we find Israel enslaved by Pharaoh. And the people, God's people, cry out to God for salvation, to be rescued. And God, in His infinite love, He hears the cries of His people. And He answers them. And He raises up a leader in Moses. And He turns the most powerful nation in the entire world upside down to rescue his people and free them from slavery. And there's the plagues and the Passover and the parting of the Red Sea and the whole nine yards. And he rescues his people. And and he promises them a home, right, the promised land. And as they are making their way to the promised land, what happens? They encounter some challenges and they start to grumble. And they start to complain. They start saying, you know what, we should, it was better being in slavery than this. It's kind of like taking your kids on vacation to Disney World and having them want to turn back because the air conditioning's on too high in first class. So as their hearts wandered away from God, the Lord lovingly disciplines his children by putting them in time out. 
And as they wandered in the desert for 40 years until that generation passed on, eventually they would enter the promised land under Joshua. And the Lord sets up his government for his people in which he rules as king, which is laid out for us in Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20. And in Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 through 20, this is important. This is going to be like the backdrop of our passage this morning. It says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. That you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And so this is the backdrop. This is the, the government that he sets up for them. And so the Lord raises up these leaders for his people that the scripture refers to as judges. And the book of Judges chronologically precedes 1 Samuel, which we're going to study this morning. And in the book of Judges, we see this pattern emerge known as the Judges cycle. And if you've ever studied the book of Judges in depth at all, you may have heard of this, this ju- the Judges cycle. It's this pattern of behavior that Israel engages in, and it kind of is like a merry-go-round. This kind of keeps happening over and over and over again in Israel. And what the Judges cycle is, is that Israel will be at peace, and there'll be prosperity in the land. But in their affluence, they get comfortable. And as they get comfortable, they start to drift away from the Lord and drift into sin. And their sin has consequences. And so they're in these consequences for sin. And what will happen is they'll cry out to God. And even though, even though the people have strayed from God, God is still faithful to them, even though they are unfaithful, just as he is faithful to us. And so God will be faithful and he'll rescue them. And what he usually does is he will raise up a leader who raise up one of these judges and that he will work in and through one of these judges to rescue his people and restore peace in the land. But like I said, this is a cycle and this keeps happening over and over and over again, repeating itself. And this is where we find ourselves in first Samuel chapter eight this morning. That in the previous chapters leading up to chapter 8, we see the judges cycle coming full circle yet again. In Israel's prosperity, they become fat, which is personified in their hefty, lethargic leader, Eli, who is the judge and actually both the judge and the high priest over Israel at the time. And basically, Eli's leadership style is falling asleep at the wheel. And that's how he leads. And he has these two sons, Hophni and Phineas, who are as wicked as wicked gets. And he just lets them run wild and run rampant. And they lead the nation astray. And things get so bad that not only are Eli's sons corrupt, but they treat the very sacrifice of God with contempt. And then unfathomably, they treat the ark of God like a good luck charm. And there's this account that we read early on in 1 Samuel where the Israelites had wandered away from God and they're in battle with the Philistines and they're losing the battle. 
And, and the people, along with uh, Hophni and Phineas, they have this great idea. They say, what if we take the ark of God and we bring it to the battlefield like it's our, you know, lucky rabbit's foot? And so they, and they're like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's bring it on out to the battlefield. And, and as soon as we bring this thing out, we'll start winning the battle. Well, guess what happens? They don't win the battle. The Philistines rout them. Eli, uh, Hophni and Phineas lose their lives. And the Philistines capture the ark of God and put it in one of their pagan temples. And Eli actually hear, hears the news and he's leaning back on his chair and he falls back in his chair and the weight of him breaks his neck and he, that's how he dies. True story. Go ahead, read it. Not lying. And so what happens is, is that there is just absolute chaos in the nation. And, and yet, so the people do what? They cry out to God for salvation. And God is so magnificent that without the people even lifting a finger, that God starts to plague the Philistine cities. And that he shows how superior he is to their pagan gods. And it gets to the point where the Philistines actually deliver the ark back to Israel without Israel even doing anything. They're like, we don't want to mess with this thing anymore. And so they bring it back. And then in, in chapter 7, God raises up his leader, his judge, and it's Samuel. And Samuel leads the nation in this time of corporate repentance and prayer. And, and their heart, the nation's heart turns back to God. And then God grants them this military victory over the Philistines. And again, we see that judge's cycle coming full circle. And peace is restored to the nation. But we know what's coming next, don't we? And what first, what's so incredible about 1 Samuel chapter 8, why it's so important is it's actually the end of the judge's cycle and the beginning of the reign of the kings. So we finally have made it to 1 Samuel chapter 8. So let's go ahead and read the first nine verses. It says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. And the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So a lot there, and I don't know if you're paying attention, but it's basically like what God tells them not to do in Deuteronomy 16. It's basically that's what they do to the T. But at first glance, we read this passage and it doesn't seem 
like Israel's request is really that unreasonable. I mean, Samuel's getting on in age, and his sons, who he's appointed in Beersheba as judges, well, they're corrupt. And the people don't want to be left high and dry with these two bozos. Kind of sounds familiar. We're in a similar situation. So what's the big deal? How can we fault Israel's desire for a change in leadership that had failed them by what the text tells us, turning aside after gain, taking bribes and perverting justice? And Israel is clearly at a crossroads as a nation. And one of the major themes we see here in 1 Samuel 8 and in Deuteronomy 16, which we just read earlier, is our desire and our need for justice. The Hebrew word mishpat is the word justice is repeated here. And you, and you Bible study students, you know when the word is repeated, you underline, you circle it. And this is so important for us to understand in relation to the gospel. Because without justice, there is no peace. That is why Jesus had to come and give his life as an atonement for our sins. You know, people have asked me before, they said, you know, if God is all powerful, if he's all sovereign, why did he have to send his son to die for our sins? Why couldn't he have just snapped his fingers and, you know, it's all done? Well, it's because the scripture says that the wage of sin is death. And that wage needed to be paid. Justice had to take place. Our God is a just God. He is not unjust. He is perfect in every way. And, and, and basically to help, help me understand this, I, I once heard it said that imagine that there was a, a person convicted of murder. And they had to stand before a judge for their sentencing. And so the judge comes before them and he says, you know what, I'm in a great mood this morning. My coffee was free at Wawa. I'm feeling great. I'm feeling really charitable this morning. And I know you were convicted, but don't worry about it. Get out of here. You're free. What would that do to us as a society? The anarchy that would take place. What would that do to the, to the victims' families? They would have no justice. They would have no peace. And that's why it's so important for us to understand that there is no peace in a corrupt society. And that's what we're experiencing, isn't it? Whether it be in Israel in 1100 B.C. or the United States in 2016, Jew or Gentile, male or female, black or white, Democrat or Republican, the people cry out for justice. Spend any time with a group of children. And more often than not, if a child is angry, the phrase that comes flying out of their mouth is what? That's not fair. Why? Because as image bearers of God, we are hardwired for justice. And that's a good thing. That's something that God put in us before the fall. We desire our hearts long for justice. Our hearts long for peace. So what actions are we to take when our leaders have continually failed us time after time and our society continues to descend in a downward spiral? What are we to do when our government becomes corrupt and impotent, void of any moral compass, leading its people to a place of disunity where the very foundations of society, such as justice, 
order and the pursuit of happiness all precariously hang in the balance. We find ourselves asking these very questions this morning. And once again, God's Word proves timeless and meets us right where we're at in our present day circumstances. Well, Winston Churchill once famously said, a pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty. This could have been a momentous time in Israel's history where instead of trying to take matters into their own hands, in their time of need, they turned to God. What an opportunity to declare God as their one and only, as their Lord and King, their first love. But sadly, instead, this trial would prove to reveal the sinful motivation of their hearts. And I believe we, as the church, find ourselves at a similar crossroad today. I believe we, as the church, have that same opportunity today. And it will reveal what we are made of. Where will we find our identity? In the midst of this national crisis involving their leadership, while there was absolutely nothing wrong with Israel's desire to have competent and just leadership, nothing wrong with that. It was the way they went about doing so that brought their sin front and center. And you see, this is where a lot of people get this passage wrong. A lot of people will say, well, you know, what was so wrong was, you know, God was Israel's king and and they wanted a human king and that was wrong. They want to replace him. Well, that's not really true, because if we go to Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, we see that the Lord actually promises them that he will give them a king. So that's why they're asking for a king. Something wrong to ask for a king. God promises them that. However, this king was to be in God's timing and of God's choosing. And so the reason why Samuel is so grieved by their request is because instead of using this time as an opportunity to turn to God, the nation uses this as an excuse to try and adopt the ways of the foreign nations that were surrounding them. The very ones that had been persecuting them. The very ones that God had been rescuing them from and defending them from time and time again. And Israel turns to them for salvation over their God. Even though God had continually been Israel's faithful provider and protector, they did not trust God to meet their needs. Instead, chose the ways of their foreign neighbors over Yahweh. Time after time, God had provided for His people. And He's continually faithful in the face of their unfaithfulness and shows them unending grace and unfailing love. But rather than turning to the Lord, Israel uses this as an opportunity to get out from under His rule. They use it as an opportunity to justify their sin. Israel is asking for more than a change in leadership. It's asking for a change in their identity. They have a profound dissatisfaction with who they are As a people. This is a rejection of their identity as God's chosen people. They choose to imitate their pagan neighbors instead of turning 
to their heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters, we cannot make the same mistake. As the people of God in the face of crisis, will we find our solutions? Will we find our identity in the ways of the world or in the God of heaven? There is such a temptation for us as Christians in the face of the injustices we experience and we see in our world on a daily basis to become harsh, to become bitter, to become cynical. Christian author Paul Miller writes, the overwhelming temptation when faced with evil is to become a wolf, to become cynical, lose your sheep-like spirit. Jesus tells us to instead be warm but wary, warm like a dove, but weary like a serpent. Cynicism kills hope, but Jesus is all about hope. We must not lose who we are in Christ and allow evil to overwhelm us, making us cynical. I don't know about you, but I'm born and raised in New Jersey. I mean, being cynical is like in my DNA, okay? It's very easy. This is something that I personally, I wrestle with. And I have to fight and and give to the Lord and repent of daily. See, God is giving us this opportunity in a time such as this to be that light. Shining in the darkness. To point people to the only place where they can find hope, justice, peace, and contentment. It's the person of Jesus Christ. So let us not withdraw. Let us not acquiesce to the ways of the world. Let us not join the chorus of angry, despondent voices of this world, but instead be the voice calling out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. Let's go ahead and read verses 10 through 18, where God graciously instructs Samuel to warn Israel of the potential consequences of their decision if he were to grant their request. Go ahead and read verses 10 through 18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Basically, he's telling them, if you choose this road, this is what's going to happen. It's like choosing slavery. And you know, it's difficult for us to accept that the Lord, what the Lord has in store for each and every one of us is even better Even better, what we could imagine or choose for ourselves. So just like Adam and Eve in the garden, Israel treated God like He was holding out on them. You ever do that? 
even though God is our deliverer, time and time again, we struggle to trust Him. We struggle to believe that He has the power to save. And so we take matters into our own hands. Israel would trust in kings to deliver them. But instead, what would happen is that they would drift further and further away from God. And these kings would eventually lead them into exile. So throughout the biblical narrative, we find that turning away from God and taking matters into our own hands always ends in ruin. The same is true in our everyday lives, isn't it? We tend to be our own worst enemy. That is the case here as Israel cannot get out of their own way. Let's read the remainder of the chapter, verses 19 through 22. The text says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No! There shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man, to his city. You know, it's incredible to think that Samuel is functioning here as the mouthpiece for God. God is speaking to his people through his prophet. And he essentially tells Israel what their fate is going to be. And how does Israel respond? They say what? We don't care. We don't care that this is what's going to happen. We want it anyway. That's a really scary place to be. I don't know if, I I pray that nobody here this morning is in that place. That you're in such bondage that you know that the path you have chosen is leading to destruction and you don't care. And I pray if that's where you are this morning, that the Holy Spirit of God would convict you and that you would choose the path of salvation, the path of grace, the path of love that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Because when we are in such blatant idolatry, we harden our hearts towards God. Israel doesn't care about the consequences. They will stop at nothing to be like the other nations because that's what their first love is. They want to fit in. Their desire to fit in, to be like everyone else, to belong It has become their God. But even in judgment, the Lord shows His grace and His mercy by granting their request so that the consequences they will endure may turn their hearts back to Him. Scholar and Bible commentator Eugene Peterson writes, Israel will finally learn who their king is. For when the Babylonian exile takes place some four or five hundred years later, putting a definitive end to kings in Israel, They will spend those years of captivity singing and praying the marvelous psalms that proclaim and praise God as king. Those approximately 500 years of mostly negative king experience, quite unlike what they anticipated along the lines of the other nations, will play their part in the revelation and recognition 
and reception of Jesus as king. So in times of national crisis, as the people of God, we must turn to the Lord and the Lord alone. We cannot allow ourselves to buy what this world is selling. Regardless of whatever your political persuasion may be, no government, no candidate can bring salvation. Salvation is only through Jesus Christ. We must not turn aside from the path God has set before us in being good news people in a bad news world. Because the things, the kings and things of this world do nothing but take. And they enslave us until there's nothing left for us to give. Jesus is the opposite. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He made the sacrifice of greatest price so that we may live. It's time for us to answer God's call to engage the mission He's called us to. We have a decision to make this morning, don't we? Will we follow the empty promises of the rulers of this world that lead to slavery or the one true King of heaven who held nothing back to set us free? Peterson writes again, referring to Israel, he says, they were a free people, free to live in faith before a merciful, saving God, but a free life of faith lived in the vast and gracious mysteries of God is a large, demanding life. It is far easier to live small, reduced to the visible and tangible requirements of petty gods and tyrant kings. Their leaders, from Moses to Samuel, kept trying to get them to live large, but they preferred to live small. It is my prayer that each of us would make God our first love, that we would follow our Savior Jesus and live large for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You so much for Your grace and Your faithfulness even when we are unfaithful. How You, in Your Son, You grant us the forgiveness of sins. So Lord, whatever we have come in here with this morning, Lord, whatever baggage it may be, myself included, Lord, we confess our sins to You this morning and we ask for Your forgiveness. Lord, we pray for, for our hearts that they would belong to You and to You alone. That You would be our first love. And that by Your grace, that our eyes would be open to the opportunities You have brought before us in these difficult times we are living in. Lord, I pray that we would submit to You, to the power and leading of Your Holy Spirit in being Your chosen people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.